0: Well, good morning. So I stopped to get coffee this morning, as I do every Sunday morning before I come to the office. And I stopped at a different place than I usually do. I walked in, I got my coffee. I walked up and got in line to pay. And a very nice lady behind the counter was trying to get me on my way. And she said, are you paying with a card? And I said, yes. She said, well, I can can get you over here. And so I go to her register and she asked me to place the cup under this like scanner on top of what looked like kind of a scale. I'd never seen anything like this, but I I guess it's a new contraption that they use. I thought they were going to weigh my coffee. I didn't really know what was happening, but you set your coffee on this contraption. It scans it and there's kind of this iPad looking device next to it that shows you your coffee and gives you your total. And she said, you know what? Never mind. She said, it's reading that you have 24 ounces of coffee, and that's a 20-ounce cup, and I don't want to overcharge you. Just go to the next register, and they'll take care of you. And I said, okay. But as I'm going to the next register, I'm eyeballing this contraption because it's it's kind of fascinating. And I said, that's really a neat machine. And she goes, well, it's garbage if you want to know my opinion. (laughs) And I said, well, you work here, so your opinion would probably matter more than anybody else's. And she goes, well, that's not the only reason my opinion matters. I'm also a woman, and I said, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on any of that. But I drove away, and I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of how we view spirituality and religion, right? It's my opinion. You can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, and who really knows what truth is, and if there is truth, where do you find it anyway, right? It's a non-cognitive feeling. Christianity is an expression of emotion, not of logic or reason. It's not a cognitive issue. But it hasn't always been this way. You know, early on when America was founded, up until about the middle of the 1800s, American Christianity was strong and it was sturdy. It was a thinking person's religion, it was most definitely intellectual. Did you know that 117 of the 119 colleges and universities that were founded in the United States were founded on Christian principles and values? If you've ever visited any of these colleges or universities, you've seen the biblical passages plastered all over the walls of buildings. At the University of Southern California, which is in Los Angeles, there is a statue of the old Methodist circuit riders looking down on the administration building. And they were placed there to make certain that the University of Southern California always held to Christian values and principles. And USC is not atypical. There was a day when the minister was the intellectual leader of not just the church, but the community, and the university worked in conjunction with him to promote Christian thought in every field of study at the school. A guy by the name of Daniel Webster said this in 1788 He said, The education of youth is an employment of more consequence than making laws and preaching the gospel because the education of youth lays the foundation on which both law and gospel rest. According to Webster, educated citizens have a better chance of understanding and embracing Jesus and thus living moral lives. But sadly, that mindset didn't persist, as you can guess. There were three great awakenings, in the mid-1800s that swept across the United States. And these great awakenings had a major impact on the Christian worldview because although a lot of good happened and came out of these awakenings, they were also rather anti-intellectual in nature. Feeling and emotion took center stage. And it was during these awakenings that altar calls were introduced And music was played to stir emotion and to get people to come forward and accept Jesus into their hearts. And so a change was occurring. Christianity was being reduced to nothing more than good moral character and emotionalism, deep intense feeling. And don't misunderstand me, those things are important. And they are essential to our faith. They are component parts of our faith. They're just not all that faith is or all that Christianity can be reduced down to. And so this started a movement and it was a movement from head to heart and to stomach. And there were two major results from these great awakenings. In upper state New York, there was an area known as the Burned Out District. And it was called that because people were burned out. They were tired of revivals and the emotionalism. There's a situation that was created where people just got got burned out from all of this. And then secondly, clergy became more and more uneducated. What I'm about to say is not meant to be rude at all. It's just historical fact, okay? So just take it as that. But two denominations that experienced great growth during these awakenings was the Baptist church and the Methodist church. And so there were a lot of people who were needing to be ministered to And the primary criterion for being a minister at that time was that you felt a call. So if you felt called to preach, you could be ordained and given a church to pastor. You could be dumb as a box of rocks. Didn't matter. All that mattered was that you felt a call. And so there was less and less of a premium placed on intellect and more and more of an emphasis placed on feeling and emotion. Now, around this same time, somewhere the 1850s to the end of the 1800s, Christianity also became the victim of assault. Anybody know what happened around that time? What book was introduced? It was Darwin's Origin of Species, and that had a great impact on Christianity as well as other ideas that came across the ocean and infiltrated American education. Historical criticism of the Bible started to develop And if you're like me and you believe in the devil and and his influence, then you know that it's no coincidence that things started to change with attacks on Christianity at the same time that churches were getting away from intellect in favor of emotionalism. Now, in response to the war on Christianity, evangelical leaders had a meeting. So these fundamentalists, as they were called, got together in St. Louis, Missouri, and tried to decide what they were going to do. But rather than focusing on ideas they decided to take a political approach. And in the North, the strategy was to keep liberals out of the mainstream or mainline denominations. It backfired. And the evangelicals were the ones that got booted out. And so they had to start their own denominations and seminaries because they lost Princeton and other mainline institutions to the secularists. In the South, the strategy was to keep evolution out of the school. That was their main focus. Remember the Scopes Trials? Remember that? And so that was, the, that was the idea for the South. Their strategy was to draw lines, and these lines became very divisive. You had the creationists, and you had the evolutionists, and you're either faithful to the Bible, meaning you were dumb and ignorant, or you were well-educated and thoughtful, and you bought into contemporary science. So things had changed, and the concept of God no longer held sway over the culture. And all the way up to the 1960s, we saw the death of God spreading out into our culture. And from 1960 to now, we've seen a growing secularization of culture with the result being the privatization and the dumbing down of religion and its claims. And do you want an example of this? Turn on the TV. Open up social media. Watch a movie. You see it everywhere. You don't have to look far for evidence. It is obvious that things have flipped and flopped. No longer do the vast majority of our colleges and universities exist to promote Christian values and education, but now it's quite the opposite, right? Many of our colleges and universities exist to promote the secular values while completely disregarding and even actively destroying Christian thought. Thinking people believe in what is scientific. Mindless dolts believe in religion, right? Now, it's not my intent to spend the rest of our time this morning attacking those who attack us. That is not the goal of this this sermon or this series. The goal is not to disparage those who disparage Christianity. The goal this morning is to remind us that Christianity was and still is a thinking person's religion. It involves the intellect. It is based in truth. It's based in God's truth, which means that not only is it knowable, it is our responsibility to know it. Being a disciple requires you to use your brain. I'm going to put some words or phrases up on the screen, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common, okay? Here we go. Bittersweet. Civil War. Resident alien working vacation, found missing, same difference. What do all of these words have in common? They fall under a heading in our English language. You know what we call these words? Oxymorons. That was awfully good. Congratulations. Nobody got that? And <laughs> hey, you guys are dead this morning. What's going on? An oxymoron is putting two words together that don't naturally go together. Here's another one for you. Blind faith. Blind faith is an oxymoron, especially from a biblical perspective, because blind faith is unscriptural. Jesus never asked people to follow him blindly. He never said, hey, just follow me and we'll work out the details. I know you don't know what's going on or you don't know much, but just follow your heart. Neither God nor Jesus ever said, hey, just trust me, They never asked anyone to follow them blindly. In fact, Scripture presents faith as evidence-based. You know, on Sunday nights, before Blake and I started this series on sexuality, we were talking about the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And you might remember we talked about both Abraham and Sarah. Let's go to Genesis chapter 17 and just give a quick synopsis of their story. Starting in verse 15, it says, Then God said to Abraham, "'As for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her by the name Sarai, "'but you shall call her Sarah. "'I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. "'Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. "'Kings of peoples will come from her.' "'Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. "'And he said in his heart, "'Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? "'And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, give birth to a child? "'And Abraham said to God, "'Oh, that Ishmael might live before you.' "'But God said, "'No,' but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's proposition. And do you know why? Because they had a brain, because they were rational people. And as rational people, they understood that a man 100 years old and a woman 90 years old don't have kids. They were rational people. So they questioned it. They laughed at it. We often focus on the lack of faith, but we would have done the same thing. You know why? Because God gave us a brain. When Gideon was approached by God, and God called him a valiant warrior, he was you know, threshing out wheat in a wine press, which is a story for another time, but it just shows how cowardly he was. God calls him a valiant warrior, and and Gideon is skeptical about his task. He knew how how big and strong the Midianites were, and God's gonna do battle with them through this man Gideon and accomplish victory. And notice what it says in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you are going to save Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I am putting a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so when he got up early the next morning and wrung out the fleece. He wrung the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me so that I may speak only one more time. Please let me put you to the test only one more time with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be a dew on all the ground. And God said, did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. Gideon needed further confirmation. And do you know why? Because he had a brain. Because he was a rational human being. You're going to send me into battle outnumbered 450 to 1? You would have done the same thing because God equipped you with logic and intelligence. When Moses was skeptical, what did God do for him? Anytime God sent a new word, he sent a sign to accompany it. And so his staff turned into a serpent. He put his hand in his cloak, pulled it out as leprous. He put it back in, pulled it out, and it was it was healed again. When we see the apostles following Jesus, they witnessed numerous miracles. The first Christians witnessed the apostles performing many miracles. All these folks were skeptical at first. Jim Drachenberg in his class was talking about Thomas not long ago, doubting Thomas, right? Truth is, all of them doubted. All of them had questions. None of them believed at first, right? All these folks were skeptical because they were reasonable, logical human beings. And that's what rational people do. They look for other explanations. But but eventually, you got to make a choice, don't you? eventually you have to either either suspend logic and ignore God's will or believe God and step out in faith. But their faith was not blind. That's the point. Their faith was evidence-based. There was evidence to consider. God, Jesus never said, just follow me blindly. Remember when John the baptizer was sitting in prison awaiting execution and he begins to start questioning some things, and you know, his, his life is on the line now, so he wants some confirmation. And he sends some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the expected one, or, or should we be looking for someone else? Now John had faith, I liken his sentiment here to the father in Mark chapter 9, Lord I believe, help my unbelief, I kind of think that's where John was at, because he knew exactly who Jesus was. I mean, he personally baptized Jesus. He witnessed, you know, God speaking, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. John even said, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Notice the question again, are you the expected one? Or should we expect someone else, basically, is what John is asking. The Greek word for expected one is the word erkomai, and it means coming one. John used that same phrase earlier in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. When he spoke of the one who is coming after me. So John hadn't hesitated to call Jesus the Messiah earlier in his ministry. But now he's sitting in a dark prison cell. His head's about to be removed. He wants some confirmation. And so he sends these messengers to ask Jesus, Are you really him? Just making sure. And Jesus answers by listing six miracles. It's an interesting response. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, yep, I'm him. It's me. Go ahead. They're going to remove your head. It's going to be fine. No, instead, Jesus said, consider the evidence. He could have said, yeah, I'm the one that walked on water. I'm the one that made the Pharisees look like morons. And all that would have been true, right? But instead, he responded with, you've seen it. You've heard it. Now do something with it. Consider the evidence. A logical response is to trust in Jesus. Once you've considered the evidence, the evidence points directly to the expected one, the Messiah, the one that we can put our faith and trust in. Any intellectually responsible person will consider all the evidence and go, okay, I'm in, right? But John was emotional. All of us would have been if our life was on the line. And it's easy for emotion to cause us to question, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. But that's where faith comes in. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. For by it, the people of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the world has been created by the Word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. By faith... "'Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, "'through which he, he was attested to be righteous, "'God testifying about his gifts, "'and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. "'By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, "'and he was not found because God took him up. "'For before he was taken up, "'he was attested to have been pleasing to God, "'and without faith it is impossible to please him. "'For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists,' and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. So I don't know about you, but I read this, and I I gather that there are two things that are true about faith, right? Two things that faith involves. It involves trusting that God exists, and it involves trusting that God rewards those who seek him. God exists, and God rewards those who seek him. Faith is trusting in these two truths, even when it's hard, even when there's a gap in our understanding, even when circumstances around us seem to to tell us otherwise, God said it. He provided the evidence, and therefore we buy in. Ultimately, I have to move forward in faith because I trust that God knows more than I do. He knows better than myself, and He has proven Himself to be trustworthy over and over again. In other words, the evidence points directly to a God who exists and a God who rewards those who seek Him. So what in the world does this have to do with our series on the Shema? Well, let's look at it again. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is here, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What I know must manifest itself in what I do you've heard me say that over and over again and long after I'm dead and gone you're going to say I remember Chris saying it's not what you what you know it's what you do with what you know right I don't care that you've memorized the Bible I don't care that you can quote the entire first chapter of Genesis 1 that's fine and good what are you doing about it how are you living your life are you living your life in response to what the Bible says You can know the Bible like the back of your hand. Are you living it? Are you doing it on a daily basis? Knowledge is power. And power isn't found in memorization. Power isn't found in facts. Power isn't meant to be weaponized so that we can win arguments. This power is meant to be manifested in love. And as our minds are mastered by truth, we in turn are mastered by it. And the rest of our being will inevitably follow. We sing about this love. We teach about this love. We share this love. Truth in your mind needs to be tasted and savored. It's not meant to be locked away in your brain or just to remain intellectual. We cannot separate the content from the emotional experience. And I think, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend, but I think that that's been a problem within the church over the years is we tend to react to other religions or what other people are doing. And so we, we give up the cross to another religion because you know, we can't be associated with him or we give up you know, what we believe about the Holy Spirit and we kind of you know, just distance ourselves there because of what some other religion is doing. And we do that sometimes with our focus on the Bible and we, we unknowingly, unintentionally elevate knowledge above all else because we don't want to be seen as emotional, but it all goes together. And we got to stop taking our cues from everybody else and take our cues from scripture love and logic go hand in hand. You know the Bible, you live the Bible. Emotion is a part of that. And Paul says so. First Corinthians chapter 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul makes both a logical and emotional argument here. The mind and the heart beat in rhythm. Knowledge powers love. Love powers knowledge. We glorify God by responding to what we know. Truth changes everything. It changes your worldview. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see other people. Your faith is founded upon and built upon love. A God who loves us, a God who rescued us, and a God who created the church so that we could love on one another. So what are you gonna do with these truths? What are you gonna do with this knowledge? Well, I hope two things. I hope you're gonna value it and share it because that's what you are called to do value, and cherish, spread it. You ever been to uh, the McDonald Observatory in the Davis Mountains? Anybody ever done that? I highly recommend it. You know, they they have these things, they call them star parties, and uh, it's on a a huge mountain there in the Davis Mountains. There's this observatory, and and it's pitch dark up there because they don't want any uh, artificial light. You go up there and for the first part of it, you sit on benches and there's this instructor that gets up there and he's got this really high-powered pointer and he, he shows you different stars and constellations. And then at some point, you get to go inside these telescopes. So I, I don't think you ever get to go in with that big one, but you get to go in some of these telescopes and look through them and see planets and stars and galaxies, those kind of things. And I've done this a few times. And every time I've done it, I tell you what I notice. I notice that something is behind all this. You can't look through those telescopes and see all that vastness in space and not think that somebody designed this, right? There is a design, and if there's a design, there's a designer. I think that this is absolutely proof of God. It's confirmation. I've considered the evidence and I've locked it away in my mind. So, what do I need to do with that information? I need to be a telescope. So that people can look through me and see God and see Jesus, right? But here's the thing. People are probably not going to want to look in your mind. They're going to look at your heart. And what does your heart reveal when they look at it? Well, hopefully it reveals Jesus. Someone who loves the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves your neighbor as yourself. Because that's Christianity in a nutshell. Luke's got an invitation song for us, and I want you to understand that when I offer this invitation, I do not want you to make an emotional decision, okay? We don't need anyone making an emotional decision to follow Christ based on a sermon or based on a song. I know that's kind of what we taught, what we've taught over the years, but Jesus wants finishers, okay? Not flash-in-the-pan Christians, So if it's just a song that moves you to do something, there needs to be more to it than that. You need to consider the evidence. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical. When we see a crowd, we get excited, right? Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical. Why are you following me? Even one person said, well, I'll follow you, Jesus. Okay, well, understand, you're not going to stay in five-star hotels. Your rock is going to be a pillow, and you remember all that? It's almost like Jesus was trying to dissuade them. I know he wasn't, but It almost seems like, but what he was saying was, look, you need to consider the cost here. Because I only want people who are going to be with me till the very end. So when we offer this invitation, if you've considered the evidence and you're ready to go full on in discipleship, and you're ready to start that by putting on Christ in baptism, then certainly let's take care of that. If you want to learn more and study about it, let's do that. But Jesus wants finishers. It's not just an emotional response. It's a logical one as well. Your brain and your heart must be involved. So, if you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?